could be the poster child for a lot of things. Self-awareness, ambition, courage, those are all badges I wear loudly and proudly. But there are a few I can't seem to escape. Managing expectations is likely the one I face more often than not. I'm not sure where my high expectations stem from. I literally can't point to one specific time in my life where and when it developed. So it makes diagnosing it that much harder. I've been disappointed a ton. Some have been self-imposed and the others have blindsided me in ways I couldn't even imagine. And those are the ones that sometimes hurt the most, especially when they continue to happen. But let's talk about self-imposed disappointment. I know her very well. She is actually a he. He's the emotionally or even physically unavailable guy. He has infiltrated my life over and over and then over and over some more. He's been married. He's been in a relationship. He's lived with the mother of his children. But you know, of course, you know, they weren't together. He's, come on, man, you know, it's been rocky lately. He's also been, come on, Crystal, you know, I've always wanted you. He's been all of that shit and then some, but he's never been mine. And if he was single, he was either emotionally unavailable, which I respect if he's honest about it, or he couldn't keep my attention and interest for long. Amongst other things, getting bored easily remains one of the biggest reasons most of my relationships have ended. While I know predictability is bound to happen in relationships, I struggle with how to fix it beyond communicating what I need for my partner. I'm a tell and show kind of girl. If I want or need something done that speaks to how I receive love, I usually tell first and then show. And I mean show in a big way. I remember being bored like crazy in one of my relationships. I missed romance. We had stopped dating and spent most of our time in the house. Verbally telling him this helped a little. We'd start dating again, having date nights here and there. I'd get just because flowers and gifts, but eventually it would stop and we'd be right back on the couch for weeks at a time. So I decided to hire a chef for his birthday, bring him in the house, cater to us with all of our favorite things. I'd bought nice cutlery. I even made rose-filled ice cubes from a recipe on Pinterest. I put dozens of rose petals all around the house. It was an extent I had never gone to before in a relationship. A pricey one too, but I didn't mind at all. I was just tired of talking. I wanted to show him what I needed and how I needed to be loved. I am 100% a romance girl. I want all the stuff that you see in the movies, just cater it to my taste. I've always been honest about this too. And you know what, now that I think about it, I think that actually may be the reason it sucks and hurts the most. I'm an avid believer in communicating what you desire up front. At almost 34 years old, I no longer have time or energy to tiptoe around my feelings or needs. If you can't, cool. Let's discuss the why, and if it's something we are not willing to adjust for the sake of an impending relationship, we need to both be done. Along with he's, there've also been she's. Navigating relationships with women was also an area I struggled in, up until about two or three years ago. This started in high school, which I don't hold too much stock in because teenagers. College was undoubtedly where I'd see my friendships go to hell, visit for a couple years, and some ultimately die there. I joined a sorority for no other reason than to have sisters. 
I'm a mom's only child and I've been raised that way my entire life. I was always, always jealous of my friends who had two parent homes and siblings. So when I got to Grambling, I knew I was going to join a sorority. Now picking one, it wasn't hard at all actually. I had read The Divine Nine my freshman year in college, but honestly it didn't really help that much. All four sororities all stood for the same things. The only difference was the when and the how. I visited Grambling during fish camp June 2004. There, I'd meet Miss Grambling State University 2004-2005, Leslie Randall, and a host of other young ladies that held leadership positions. They all had one thing in common, AKA. Beyond falling in love with Grambling during that week, I also fell in love with the boy. Hi, Chad. (laughs) And I fell in love with a sorority. It was settled. I was going to be an AKA. And a year later, on October 16th, 2005, I'd become one at the age of 19. Now, pledging an organization that young was incredible. Unlike many, three of my four years in undergraduate were spent in a sorority. You almost instantly become popular. Now, I have to say, at Grambling, you are either an athlete, you're in the band, or you were Greek. And if you weren't, you were trying to be an athlete, you were trying to be in the band, or you were trying to be Greek, right? So when you're that popular, you're sought after by girls that want to be you and guys who want to be with you. It's literally high school with a liquor license. Now, as much fun as being an AKA was, it also wasn't. It taught me so much about the type of young woman I was becoming. Selfish, mean at times, haughty, and spoiled. My friendships with the girls I met my freshman year were hanging on by a thread or otherwise completely obliterated. I am happy to say, though, now that 16 years later, it is all love between us. Even a handful of my line sisters and some of my pro fights and other sorority sisters and I had such a tumultuous relationship that by 2007, I hated the organization as a whole. I didn't fall back in like with the sorority until around 2015, and by then, the flame was barely flickering. Since then, I've been able to repair the relationships that truly mattered to me after we both acknowledged wrongdoings. And I look forward to celebrating our 15th anniversary at homecoming. You know, if Corona doesn't say otherwise, of course. So those are the self-imposed heartaches and pains, right? But the ones that completely unearth you, those are the ones that develop that layer of skin you sometimes need to navigate certain spaces. I'm a career girl. Love and marriage and babies is great, but even if it doesn't happen for me, as long as I'm successful in my career, I'll feel as if I didn't let 15-year-old Crystal all the way down. You're listening to episode three, which means you've heard about my bout with professional mean girls in episode one. But one part of that story is worth revisiting as it relates to managing expectations. I have worked at TV One for three years. It has undoubtedly been the best and worst part of my career. On one hand, I've produced award-winning work that was broadcasted to more than 56 million people. And on the other hand, I've been lied on, wrote up, mistreated, and accused of stealing ideas from people who were my managers and team members. When I left Tom Joyner in 2017 and decided to move across the country to Silver Spring, Maryland, I was undeniably excited. I was finally transitioning into television and doing so for the only Black-owned cable network. It was truly a for-us-by-us dream of mine, and I couldn't wait to embark on my journey. That feeling would subside within a year of working at TV One. 
By year two, any excitement I had working for and around black women had completely vanished. May 2019 was by far the hardest time of my life. During my two-year review, I was asked to sign a formal written warning for my behavior in the office. I was completely caught off guard because I'd never been questioned by anyone about the things that were listed in that document. Accusations of bullying filled the first paragraph. Now, I have never been in a fight in my life, so the mere mention of someone accusing me of bullying them was preposterous. I'd later learned that intimidation is a form of bullying, and although I'd never aggressively walked up to someone or tried to block them from getting out of the room, you know all the things in your mind that you think are forms of intimidation? What I learned was the moment anyone feels as if you are being more stern or serious than they can handle, it can automatically fall under the definition of bullying. Was I short and stern in emails? Sure, sure. My patience was thin in a ton of areas, and that would clearly come across in meetings. Now, categorizing it as bullying is a reach, but, you know, tomato, tomato. Besides, if anyone really believed I was the person on that document, there'd be no reason I'd still have a job to this day. While I didn't like any association with the term bullying, what I absolutely fought tooth and nail for was the accusation of stealing ideas from my colleagues and taking credit for them on social media. I won't go into too many details because I've been vindicated in that area, but when I tell you this one hurt, it hurt like hell. Thank God for receipts because emails and screenshots saved my life during that time. The accusations were removed from the document, but the damage had been done. Being accused of things by your peers is one thing. You can kind of get spicy in your delivery, but when the lies are from the people that you report to, it instantly makes it that much more of a stickier situation. Two black women were responsible for the lies and heartache and pain and disappointment I felt from that moment on. It had actually started in 2008, but it was more of a one-off thing than a constant feeling of, are you serious? That next month, I'd sit down with HR and the women involved. The document was amended. It was still a final written warning, but the accusations of stealing credit and ideas were removed. The only thing that remained was the bullying, and that was only because the two young ladies that were behind the claim no longer worked there. So essentially, it was their word against mine. Fine. Whatever. The sit-down would happen a week before my 33rd birthday. I vowed to come back from nine days in Punta Cana with a different attitude. Not for them, but for myself. Those expectations of working with women that looked like me had been run over, dismantled, and unrecoverable. I decided I wasn't going to cower, shrink, or dim my light because of jealousy, envy, and insecurities that had nothing to do with me. Those expectations of working with women that looked like me had been run over, dismantled, and unrecovered. I decided I wasn't going to cower, shrink, or dim my light because of jealousy, envy, and insecurities that had nothing to do with me. I watched my back, reevaluated relationships in the office, and only did my job. Everything else, the personality, the funny, the connections that I once made, I was done. I no longer knew who to trust. Another element of managing expectations that is difficult to navigate is trust. I can now say with utter conviction, I absolutely do not expect anyone to defend or stand up for me in the workplace. But especially 
and unfortunately, people I once trusted. Working from home during the pandemic has been beautiful for me. I no longer had to go into an environment where I couldn't show up as myself without fear of repercussions. Do you know how exhausting it is to leave the things that make you you in the parking garage every morning? But as nice as it's been, it has still exposed people in the ugliest of ways. Power is a drug. It clouds judgment and turns you into the very people that at one time you complained about. This is a lesson I am dealing with as I speak. I am on the receiving end of said ugliness and it's coming from a once trusted space. It hurts. I'm angry as fuck, but even more so, I'm disappointed. But what I'm learning from all of this is to stop expecting me from other people. It leaves too much room for hurt feelings. I'm no longer going to fulfill anyone's expectation within reason to gain respect or appreciation. Wanting to feel valued and appreciated isn't a problem. It's the attachment to that person or that thing that is. I thought working with and around black women was going to be inspiring and encouraging, when many times it was the opposite, causing my feelings to be crushed in the process. The same could be said about men. I absolutely do not believe men in general, but especially black men, have to be all things to all women. It's unrealistic and absurd. But there was a modicum of allyship I expected in the workplace and it never materialized. Whereas I would speak up, they wouldn't. Silence means you are complicit. I am now cognizant of those that don't stand up and don't call out issues as to not disrupt an environment. Again, it stings and it sucks, but perspective will help you in situations God decides not to pull you out of just yet. So how does one manage expectations? One of the most important first steps is to speak kindly to yourself. I've struggled with that. I walk past my reflection and groan or roll my eyes or say, ugh, I'm so fat at the slightest hint of something I don't like. I didn't realize this until my best friend Lauren pointed it out one weekend. She said she hadn't heard me say one nice thing about myself when I looked in the mirror. Ouch, that that, that stung a bit, it did. I think about her words always when I'm ready to call out things I don't like in the mirror. And it makes me careful about what I say out loud and even more so about what I think. The second thing, creating boundaries. Child, I love me some boundaries. I set them with everyone, including myself. My first proud work boundary was not taking my computer home. I practically slept with my laptop and work phone for three years. If work needed to be done after hours and on weekends, I'd be the first one to respond to emails and fix the problem, whatever it was, even when that problem could have waited until the next workday. That created, as you can guess, an unhealthy working relationship with my colleagues. I eventually had to help manage their expectations of what kind of team member I no longer was. And while I'm sure there was some discomfort, my boundary was clear. I do not answer emails or do any work of any kind after I leave the office. Although I'm a salaried employee, I am not on call 24-7, and I refuse to be unless it was previously discussed. Now, I am able to take this sort of stance because my work, it speaks for itself. I continuously deliver great work. I shatter records and exceed mine and our team's goals. I'm also a senior staff member as opposed to an entry-level employee, so I have some room to make a few rules. Now, the third and last thing, knowing how to pivot in your emotions. I am by nature super emotional and dramatic. I mean, I've always been that way. 
literally. It's followed me all throughout my life. A few of my profites even named me dramatical with the AKA in the middle, of course, uh, because of it. I feel everything deeply, hurt, pain, anger, happiness, joy. I feel it so innately. So of course, when things don't go as planned or people spew ugliness, I wanna react, especially when I've had a relationship with this person. Pivoting in my emotions, which means ultimately choosing to not react in anger or resistance, is something I've been actively working on. I had to do it today when I received a dismissive and a rude text message from a colleague. My palms instantly got sweaty and I could literally hear my heart beating through my ears. I fired off the first thing that came to mind, but right before I pressed send, I deleted it. I just needed to get it out. And while the person didn't get to read the kiss my ass in my tone, it felt good to get it out of my head. The text I actually sent was nicer in comparison, but it still got my point across. And instead of run to social media or anyone else, I let my anger turn to tears and literally cried out for God to fix the situation. Because if any more of Crystal would have came out, it would have been far from pretty. And while I don't know how the situation will pan out tomorrow or in the weeks to come, I'm proud of myself for going to God and leaving it with him. I didn't subtweet nobody. I didn't text my other colleagues who are privy to our strained relationship. I left it with the one person who I know can fight my battles better than I can. Learning the art of pivoting in my emotions is a continuous work. I don't always get it right, but when I do, I'm damn proud of myself. Being misunderstood never feels good. I've dealt with that feeling for two decades. I truly thrive on my ability to connect with all people. It's the reason I'm great at my job as a producer and journalist. So the moment there's a bit of tension in the air due to a misunderstanding, I like to rectify it immediately. I don't mind having the hard and uncomfortable conversations in any relationship, be it professional or personal. But what I can no longer worry myself with are other people's expectations. As long as my intentions are pure, everything else one may get from that is often a reflection of deep-seated insecurities which have absolutely nothing to do with me. Expectations are beliefs based only on opinions and preferences. Understanding that will help you feel empowered when you need to manage not only your expectations, but others.